Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 203. Today on our show, it's the best of 2021, part one. Now, we do this every year. We go back and review episodes from the previous year, kind of like a little Whitman sampler, if you will, of podcast episodes of the Cincy Shirts Podcast. So maybe you're not sure what episodes you should listen to, although I think you should go back and listen to all of them. Uh, maybe you're not exactly sure, and like a little sampling of what we talk about on the show with our guests. And so we're going to take care of that today and next week as well. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to remind you that if you've been liking the podcast, please support it by PayPal or Venmo. Use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code that I'm going to choose at the end of the episode. You can use that to take 20% off your entire cincyshirts.com or oldschoolshirts.com order or go into our stores on Over the Rhine and Hyde Park and you can use it there as well. Now, let's move on with the Cincy Shirts podcast year in review part one. We're going to start with episode 154. We spoke to the folks at the library who do the West End podcast there, and they discussed a little bit about uh, the history of the West End and how it's changed over the years. And now where's the stadium in relation to you? Because I thought it was further south than it was, and I was working an event for us in Washington Park, and I could see the, the it rising over the buildings, and I'm like, oh, it's actually <laughs> northwest of Music Hall. It's not southwest like I thought it was. It's hard. I'm, I'm really bad at <laughs> describing directions but i know that when if you go out onto our front steps and you look to your right you will see you know the stadium rising above you know city west apartments basically okay. so it's um you can you i can't really necessarily see taft high school but it's like behind there because of course their field was where it's located now and how has the West End changed sort of over the years? I, like we said, it it got, you know, sliced in half when the freeway came through. And uh, a lot of buildings were raised as part of urban renewal. But what what's kind of gone on sort of post-World War II going forward? Well, in addition to 75, um, you had a lot of the way that the city West buildings look, even though they don't exactly, you know, look the way that the buildings looked at that time. And they have... Uh, many more amenities than those buildings had. It was the community is way more dense and it had more buildings like that and throughout the community. You also had a lot of businesses in the community as well. Um, so I think from what people have described to me, you didn't have to leave the West End for anything because you had all these different businesses that, you know, like, you know, grocery stores and thrift stores and little shops. And, and also you had entertainment, you know, you had um, the Regal and, and many other things. I can't think of the name of the other theater that, and also um, place where people performed that the SC stadium, um, that building was also demolished um, with the stadium. Um, so that's how people describe it. And then they actually destroyed a lot of that type of housing for Laurel Homes and Lincoln Courts and also, you know, eventually Parktown and Stanley Row uh, Tower and Stanley Row Row Houses and things like that. So a lot of people were displaced. Um, I think that 
maybe they were supposed to be rehoused into these housing projects, but a lot of people were not. But then, unfortunately, probably due to funding and a whole lot of other situations, there's only one part of Laurel Homes that still exists today, and I think it's historically registered. Uh, but the rest of Laurel Homes, which is where Parktown, not Parktown, where um, City West Apartments is, and Lincoln Courts, where the other part of City West is, um, that was destroyed for, you know, City West. So, so yeah, that's those, those are some of the big changes that have happened in the community. But, you know, and like I said, the, the lack of businesses as well. And the fact that it's kind of a food desert, it doesn't have a major grocery store. That was Colony Parks, the manager of the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library's West End Branch, talking about the West End. And yes, they do a podcast you can find on the library website. We've got a lot of library folks. We have one coming up uh, a little bit here as well, talking about another podcast that they do. We then move on to episode, let me see, 155, where we discussed Cincinnati Animal Care with Ray Anderson, who is the uh, Community Relations Manager for Cincinnati Animal Care. One of the things we talked about was cats. Per the law, cats are like rabbits or foxes or coyotes. I was just wondering because um, the, one of the, the neighbor cats came over and got into our tree and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to call the fire department. Well, he made his way back down because cats are not great climbers, but this one fortunately was. And then the, 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 another, the day after he was in our driveway and I just scooted him with my foot. I said, go back to your own yard, please. And the guy comes out and yells at me for kicking his cat. And I'm like, dude, I'm not kicking your cat. I just want him stuck in my tree again. And just also, kind of a little, you just gave him a little scoot. A little nudge, yeah. We're yeah. Not, if, I would have launched him if you wanted, wanted me to kick him. But, um, <laughs> and I would never do that. I'm just saying, I would, there's a difference. And, but yeah. I, just, I told him, look, look, dude, I mean, we're not cat owners. We are now because your cats are constant. They're more in our yard than they are in his yard. <laughs> and, so, and, it's, and we don't want it. Like, I don't want to have to keep my garage door closed. That's another dangerous. Garages are, are terribly dangerous for cats. But not sure, going to keep yeah. my garage door all closed things. all the time. Yeah. So, um, which is ridiculous. In a case like that, um, we also always recommend any sort of shelter um, that can be provided with with straw. It has to be straw, uh, not like blankets or anything like that, because those freeze and the animals can freeze to them if they get wet. Oh. Um, but <laughs> straw, a straw-lined shelter, whether it's a box a uh, dog house, a cat house, mm-hmm. um, something like that, uh, that should that should keep the cat occupied. A little Rubbermaid container there with a go. hole cut in the top. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, that's that's the best way to keep a cat safe uh, when we start to get cold and they, they live primarily outside. Hmm. And don't forget, cats are the number one killer in the animal kingdom. They are, they are apex predators. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. That yeah, cats are, cats can be, they just do it for fun. Ray Anderson from Cincinnati Animal Care. We move on to episode 156. These are friends of Billy's, our custom uh, custom designs manager, director, I guess you would say. And this is one of his clients, full disclosure, but very fascinating. The Cincinnati Watch Company, these fellas make actual watches right here in Cincinnati. It's Rick, Jordan, and Mark. And one of the things they discussed is how they come up with their designs and what inspires them and how they kind of keep things so it's still affordable for the regular person. I think that definitely has been a part of the of the design process up till now is that we want our watches to appeal not just to watch people, but to the general public as well, especially to people who have Cincinnati ties, right? Being the Cincinnati watch company. And so we've tried to keep our watches where, as you said, they're attainable to a guy who isn't buying watches every day, who isn't 
totaling them, right? They're going to buy one watch and wear it. And their idea of an expensive watch is $300, $400, $500. Right. Um, and so we, we tried to make that a part of our mission while still being able to give back to the community. Right. We're not ever going to have a $59 watch because there would be no way for us to give anything to back to the community. And that's one of the key fundamentals of what we're doing here is we're supporting community organizations as well. Um, two things I want to jump in and say here, uh, backtrack a little bit here. Sure. Rick, Rick had said that it's 50% of the fun is designing the watch and 50% of the fun is working with the or finding the organizations and working with them. I think that answers the question as to how they got from build your own watch to Cincinnati watch company. Logistics wasn't part of the fun. And when you're doing build your own watch, there is a ton of logistics involved in the people ordering, Oh, I want this and this and this and this, and you having to package it and get it out there. Um, we're still building our own watches, the stuff we like, the stuff that inspires us. We still get to do all those fun parts and the logistics is much easier, shall we say, delivering a finished product um, out to to the public. Um, and then as far as design ideas go, I mean, like Rick said, we don't have a list, but there's, I think we all have ideas in the back of our head always going on. We're always working on the next thing. Rick Jordan and Mark from the Cincinnati Watch Company. They are passionate about watches and you can check their stuff out. Just Google them, Cincinnati Watch Company. You'll get all the Cincinnati Watch info that you need. Moving on to episode 157, we did a couple of these this year, the history of Cincy shirts going from all the way from before the company was called Cincy Shirts, when it was Look At Me Shirts, all the way up to present day. And at first, Josh and Darren were kind of reluctant to do this because they didn't want to seem, you know, braggy. And they thought, well, who's really interested? You know, people love us, love our shirts and everything. But who wants to go into all that detail? Well, apparently a lot of people do because whenever I do events, people always ask. We get emails all the time. Guests on the podcast will ask us here and there, oh, how did you guys get started? Or how did you guys do this? How did you come up with this idea? So I figured it would be a good idea for them to walk us through the history in bits and pieces. This is chapter one. Uh, like I said, we did this all throughout the year, and Darren finished it up in November, I believe it was. But in chapter one, he discusses the Look at Me shirts days and discusses the what happened with one of their most popular early designs and kind of the problems Darren had uh, fulfilling orders and storing T-shirts. I remember one day was like, I don't know, there, there was like a Baptist church outing or something. And I, I just remember that, it, you know, it, it was basically like church day at the at the Reds game. I was like, man, what what is going on today? Like, no one likes my shirt. Like, even God Hates the Steelers is, is getting hated on. And then <laughs> I saw something, you know, on the ground or whatever saying it was like, church day <laughs> so anyway so that was that was kind of funny i was like oh dang my shirt was so popular last week and now everybody hates it so moving along so that was our that was our our first hit and at the time you know we were outsourcing our shirts they were being printed by a company in oakley called a t-shirt company he gave us a pretty good deal he would print 12 shirts for us so uh rick was a good dude but and then i would I would go pick up boxes of teas, take them to my apartment in Newport, you know, print out every order individually, which is probably, I don't know, two or three a day. I'd usually send the wrong size out, sometimes the wrong shirt. You know, I was not good at fulfillment. <laughs> so, so that was fun. I remember Josh like, dude, you're killing me with all these damn 
mess ups all the stuff. Like, oh, my apartment's the one that's full of shirts here, so you can take it over at any moment. So we were selling enough shirts that we were like, you know what, dang, we're really paying this we're paying these this t-shirt company a lot of money to get our shirts printed, so we should try to get our own equipment. So anyway, so we got ended up getting a loan for our uh, screen print equipment. And we're like, oh, okay, so we're, you know, where are we going to do this? And Josh knew a gentleman named Owen Rassman who uh, owned a giant warehouse in Dayton, Kentucky. So anyway, he said, hey, you know, I got this T-shirt thing going on. And uh, he's like, I, I, you know, I was in your warehouse for some random event and thought it was pretty cool and was wondering if you would consider renting to us. And he's like, man, he's like, well, that building's empty. And I'm paying a hell of a lot of money on insurance right now because it's empty. So he said, how about, you know, if you guys clean it up and get it looking how you want, uh, you can move your equipment in there. And he's like, I won't charge any rent for, I don't know, first year, for six months, something. It was huge. So that's what we did. So we we're it was an old carpet warehouse. It used to be like a carpet store. Um, the building was like amazing, just all ran down and... Uh, there's carpet on the walls. They stapled carpet samples to the walls. So we're ripping all that stuff off. And, you know, there's probably asbestos flying everywhere. And I mean, it was, uh, it was wild. Darren discussing the history of Cincy shirts. Chapter one, we did uh, songs about Cincinnati. Another recurring, uh, I guess, series that we had. You can check those out. Uh, there's a, I think we're up to volume five or six. Uh, we repeated the Pat Berry episode, the late Pat Berry, one of our, our favorite guests ever. And then we get to episode 161, Wilbur, the mayor of Rabbit Hash over there in Kentucky. And his, uh, his human, Amy Nolan, discussed a whole bunch of things with us about Rabbit Hash and about Wilbur and about how a dog becomes the mayor. Uh, she also discussed, Josh asked about therapy animals and kind of why that's a thing now, as well as why there hasn't been a movie about Rabbit Hash. It's very fun. Now, can you explain, can you explain the whole therapy dog sort of phenomenon like i I'm, I'm a comedian right so i've been traveling many many times a year for a better of 20 years but it just seems like in the last i don't know six or seven years or so maybe the last decade you really start to see people with the therapy dogs of or therapy animals or there was a lady with a therapy possum i saw like is is it is it like a new law? Is it a is it a loophole that people can use to be able to take their pets with them to places that they didn't used to be able to? Like, what do you have a take on it? I'm 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 genuinely asking because I'm I've just, it's just become so much more of a thing lately, and I don't I don't know the reason why other than it just seems like people want to bring their pets more places. Well, I think there's two types of people in it with that are dog owners that want them to be a therapy dog. One is the people that, that want to just bring their dog with them. So they're going through the motions and paying the money and whatever just to get that so that their dog can travel with them on airplanes, especially because they've really cracked down on the laws. And then there's other people, I think the whole other spectrum, which is they want to take their dogs to hospitals to see kids and visit, you know, sick people or older people or whatever. So I think you got both ends of the spectrum there. And more and more people want to travel with their pets because people are becoming more, you know, places are becoming more pet friendly 
and uh, they can't do that without that, you know, get your dog on the plane in there with you and not underneath somewhere. So that's, I think that's kind of what it is. I think you got two parts, people that really, really want their dog to help people and then people that want to take their dog with them. Yeah, because it's like sometimes I see people on an airplane and like, this is my therapy dog and the dog's like going crazy and it's, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that causing you more stress is therapeutic for you because it certainly looks like it's more stressful than it is helping you out. <laughs> Yeah, we see that a lot. It's kind of it's pretty funny. My uh, my daughter's got a friend in college, and she took a therapy lizard. Um, <laughs> therapy lizard. Some, yeah, at some point they they kicked the therapy lizard out, and um, it lived in her car for a long time. So it's a therapy lizard. That therapy lizard's in law school with dreams of becoming the the circuit court judge at Rabbit Hash one day. There you go. <laughs> yeah, he's a lot lizard currently but uh-oh that's not good <laughs> so does yeah, sense that he's... the whole uh animals running the the, the town thing I, li- I like that the uh yeah get a judge in there get a a whole council city council how has there not yeah, been there's... a movie about rabbit hash yet like this sounds like a disney movie that's oh, like sure. a real like a real like based on a true story you know there, uh, there was a movie made called The Center of the Universe, and you'll have to check it out. I think you can watch it on YouTube now, but uh, there was a movie made, and it's it's very interesting, and um, they are going to make another movie soon, from what I understand. Hmm. Um, there's been a bunch of different filming down there. There's a gentleman out in L.A. that owns a lot of the movie rights, so I, again, I, I'm not privy to what goes on with that, but... Yeah, it it'd be it'd be an awesome series because there's interesting people. I mean, the people down there you can go down there. And people watch without a dog for the day and have just a blast. And you don't know why you had fun, but you did. And every day's different. Every time I go down there, you know, it's a whole different experience. I've been going since I was a little kid. Um, I always wanted to have a dog as mayor. I had a couple, you know, other dogs, and I thought, hmm, but then it just wasn't the right timing. Uh, but with Wilbur, I thought, you know, he's perfect. So. We're going to win this. I'm not competitive until I get into a competition. <laughs> then I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to win. But, you know, there was two things that you could see every morning on your news feed, on your social media, and it was COVID-19 and Wilbur. I mean, I just, I put Wilbur all over social media. And people were probably a little sick of it, but that's that's kind of what we did. And we reached out to everyone. We held a Jeep rally. Uh, Wilbur has a Jeep, you know. He also has an MG. He hangs out in his little campaign car. So we did some car rallies and stuff, and, you know, he came out winning. But, yeah, he worked hard. Amy Nolan from Rabbit Hash. Actually, he doesn't live in Rabbit Hash, but her dog is the mayor of Rabbit Hash. Of Rabbit Hash, how about that? We next spoke to the folks from the Taft Museum of Art, Elise Solomon in particular. She's the director of learning and engagement there. And what's one of the things we like to talk about most on the Cincy Shirts podcast, it turns out, is ghosts. And the Taft has plenty of those. Yeah, had ghost tours. That was one of the stops, and we took all these pictures. And yeah, there's a, I don't know. Tell tell us about that. <laughs> well, I will say, you know, we have had you know debates about whether or not this is true. Um, but I know that uh, I've heard some stories about uh, hearing sounds in the attic. Um, and so that's that's where I think that most of it comes. Like I think we've had some stories about. Uh, oh, uh, and I think in our shop too, we've had some stories of like things being moved around and, um, 
unexplained, uh, <laughs> every, the doors are all locked, like unexplained um, movements of things. So that's about as far as I know, but I have not yet experienced it myself, which is kind of a bummer. Okay. Yeah, they say you have to be tuned yeah. in. That's what somebody yeah. told me in college. They, I said, I've never seen a ghost before. So and they're like, oh, you're not, you're not tuned in. I'm like, no, whatever that means. And to this day, I guess I'm still yeah. not tuned in. But um, so do you know who, who the ghosts are supposed to be? Are there any like set legends or is it just a lot of like you said the hearsay about just noises and things? I heard the thing about the locks. I think the, the ghost guy told that on, on this show, actually, about the, the lock. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really. Yeah, I'm not sure who they're supposed to be. Like, I think that oh, I've heard of like noises, like sounds like children and like hmm. maybe a woman voice. Like that's about as far as I've I've heard. I don't know if they're supposed to be people in particular. Okay. Did anyone ever die in the house? I mean, I think people died in the house, but not like in any sort of like nefarious, you nice. know, natural causes. Yeah. Uh, sort of like. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, yeah. Because I, I, I guess the yeah, mythology. Yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm very boring on that. <laughs> well, no, I think the, the mythology is supposed to be that you know the, the reason there's ghosts is because they they have unfinished business or they they were they weren't ready to die or something something like that. And it seems like the Tafts had a pretty good life and they knew and and Mrs. Taft knew what was coming. Like she had got all the affairs in order and said, we're going to make this a museum. So I don't it didn't doesn't seem anything bad happened. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm, you know, I think that there's probably some spiritual realm out there that perhaps could uh, uh, be contributing to some of these uh, fun stories, but I'm not sure. I have not experienced it myself yet. Elise Solomon discussing ghosts and the Taft Museum of Art on the Cincy Shirts podcast. Episode 163, we go to back to our friends at the library, and they have a podcast called My Favorite Album is Terrible, and that is hosted by a good friend of the show, Kent Mulcahy. And he is the Grants Resource Librarian at the Cincinnati Public Library. But he also hosts this great podcast where people come on. And essentially, the premise is you pick an album that you love by an artist that most people love. But they have an album that maybe isn't that great, but you still love. And, of course, uh, I appeared on their show a couple of weeks after this discussing the Beach Boys' 15 big ones. Here, Kent discovers uh, some of the stuff he listens to, including something that my daughters used to listen to a lot. That being Screamo music, if you're familiar. I would say at this point, 99% of what I listen to is like death metal and noisy electronic type stuff. Um, the last thing that I listened to was an album by a German band called Defeated Sanity. And that was the last thing I put on the turntable oh, wow. this morning. So, so new stuff, <laughs> old stuff? Uh, they're an old band, but yeah, this is their, this is their newest new record. Okay, interesting. Huh. The kid was asleep, so it was okay. Uh, the, the, the rule in the house is if I'm listening to anything where the vocals sound like, you know, screaming or cookie monster, I have to have it on headphones. But he was asleep, so I yeah, my, um, put it out. My oldest went through what we call, uh, I guess, the, she listened to a lot of screamo bands. Yes. There was, there was a... Uh, there was kind of a, um, a, a a Venn diagram of the kind of what they called scene bands, and then <laughs> there was this crossover. Some of the screamo bands, like who, like Falling in Reverse, and um, who was the other one? Uh, Pierce the Veil. But then yeah. they would also end up on t- these massive tours with a lot more mild stuff, like more like pop rock bands, like the Somerset yeah. and All Time Low, and people like that. M- most of the uh, what was the Vans Warped Tour bands. 
But, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so so we we dipped our toe in those waters, and um, and uh, some of it was fine. I mean, you know, not as not as harsh as you. But there are a lot of me- melodies going on. There's some some good tunes in there. Uh, got a little taxing after a while. <laughs> yeah, screamo is that genre that I dipped my toe into for a while. I was probably right on the cusp of being too old for it. Right when uh, it started becoming a yeah. thing with bands like Thursday and thrice and things like that but i i so sometimes i'm like i I don't know if i'm gonna listen to that anymore but i was way into it for (laughs) a little while yeah i remember we saw uh i don't know what who the headliner was but one of the support acts was uh, it was a a lady screamo singer and she was in a band called i wrestled a bear and Uh, i remember i I was in the bear once yeah that it yeah i wrestled a bear okay so i uh, was in the balcony my daughter was down in uh in what we call the pit but not in the actual pit it's still a running gag with us by the way um <laughs> uh but i was listening to i wrestled a bear once and i texted my wife and said i think this poor lady is actually being eaten by a bear uh, <laughs> now see that's that, the kind of vocals a, i go for that's, that's, that's my man. thing yeah well that's the thing though is like and i hate to I, I hate to sound misogynistic about it but i just i don't think it was a matter of fact that she was it was a girl doing it it was just a matter of it just I think some people have a voice for it, and, and some people don't. And I don't. Yeah, that's true. I don't think they may have because, like you know, Pierce the Veil and Falling in Reverse and all those guys. I, I, I had you know, I could take that for you know half hour, forty five minutes. I didn't have any problem with that. But um, I'm trying to think what the name of the group was. We saw. I don't think they were a screamo, but they were kind of uh, mm. I see stars. I think they're from Detroit. I think it was I, them. That sounds familiar. I don't know if th- that name sounds familiar, but I don't think I'm familiar with them yet. Well, so anyway, they were up on stage, and they kept. In- they really wanted to get some slam dancing going at Bogart. <laughs> and so they kept saying, we want to see this pit open up. So that's been a running gag. My daughter's 23 now and works at the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame in Cleveland. But we still, to this day, whenever we're at a concert, we'll always say, we want the pit to open up, no matter who we're seeing. <laughs> we're at Bunbury. We're like, is the- we'll ask you, this: has the pit opened up yet? Ken Mulcahy discussing Screamo music, and be sure to check out their podcast over there at the library. My favorite album is Terrible. We go to another art museum, that being the Cincinnati Art Museum. Russell Ehrig is the Associate Director of Interpretive Programming at the museum, and he discussed, oh, all about the uh, Cincinnati Art Museum, its whole history, the things it has today, how it collects things, what it displays, what it doesn't display, how it rotates stuff in and out. He also discusses the uh, the term, I guess he, the museum was once called the, uh, I guess, the Palace of Art or the Palace of the Midwest, and he did, that's also the name uh, of their podcast there. And uh, he discusses how that kind of uh, may or may not be completely accurate, or maybe if the term was coined later in the museum's history. Here he is. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's all these kind of like, and that's where actually, so the title of, of my podcast is called Art Palace, and that's based on this maybe somewhat apocryphal uh, legend that we were called the Art Palace of the West. Um yeah, so it, which always makes me laugh the idea of Cincinnati being the West, but I guess that kind of gives you a sense of like the time, like well, yeah, that was the West at that time. Um, but then I was talking with our archivist, and he's a little dubious of this expression because he's only seen it used much, much later in time by one of the directors in like the '60s or '70s. I can't remember who 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 threw out this phrase in that same way of saying, oh, we were known as this, but he's never seen it written anywhere before that. Uh, so I love that detail of like, well, maybe we were called this. I don't know. Like, <laughs> or maybe it's a little bit of myth making uh, on our own part. <laughs> 
Russell Eric from the Cincinnati Art Museum. Our next guest came ex on episode 165, Cincy in a Box. So it's Catherine Lawrence and her husband, Sean. They founded Queen City's preeminent gift basket business after returning to the area from Bermuda. Now, they're not even from Cincinnati originally. They're from Northeast Ohio, both of them. But uh, he fell in love with the area. She went to college in Dayton. She fell in love with the area. And she kind of discusses how they came to really uh, feel uh, you know, grounded in Cincinnati and how uh, her husband should be the mayor of Cincinnati. There are times when we're filling orders and we might not have just one item and we have to run out and go get it. <laughs> so we try not to make it be like that, but it it's, can be pretty unpredictable. Like I said, we often don't know what someone is going to want. I mean, that's the beauty of the boxes that it's customizable and we have certain items that pretty much people put in every box, but, and those are always in stock, but it, it, it really, it'll be really surprising because one day, um, one of our items will sell 10 of them and the next, and then not sell that particular item for a month and a half. So it, it's just interesting. It always seems like the same, the customer's find the same item hot at the same time. I don't know if that's making sense. But. That does. Because I was going to say, it's kind of like the t-shirt business. And Darren always says this. He just never knows. Sometimes we'll come up with an idea and we'll think, this is a slam dunk. We're going to sell a million of these things. And we don't. And then the opposite happens. This this design's okay. This people we, I mean, people will get this idea, and we sell a million of them. Well, not a million. We wish yeah. a million, but we sell tons of them. And then there's other ones we do guess right on, and it's like, yeah, this is uh, like the one we just did this past week. The 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 Dora maps of the where you could drink outside. We thought this is going to be a slam dunk, and so far hasn't done super well. Hopefully, people will as the weather warms up, they'll appeal to them. Go go to the website and grab those kids. And yeah. on the opposite. <laughs> I remember a couple when I was first working for the company part time. Uh, we had for the All Star Game. Uh, speaking of food related, uh, when Ariana Grande she had licked a donut and she was going to come here and do the national anthem, and then they told her not to come. And then so Josh said, "We're going to do a shirt called No Donut Liquors Allowed." And Darren, the other one, was like, "I don't know. If that's the strongest idea. We couldn't <laughs> couldn't keep them on the shelves." So tons oh, really? and tons of them. Yeah, yeah. I remember standing outside Moorline at the stand with my daughter. We were working the, the stand. Sold tons of them. Walk the Moon came by and bought some. It was crazy. Yeah, so, That's awesome. so yeah, so yeah, it's like, like you're saying, you just never know what's going to resonate with people, even when it's something as tried and true as, you know, Cincinnati foods that people grew up with. It's just, right. yeah. Um, and so speaking up, how familiar were you? with Cincinnati cuisine before you got here, kind of having been from Northwest Ohio and being sort of close, did you not really realize till you got here, like the variety and kind of the, the, the some of the regional favorites that seem to be unique to the area? No, I wouldn't say I knew, I knew a lot about it. I definitely had to experiment and learn through other Cincinnatians as well as just kind of going out and searching actively searching for things that are made in Cincinnati and then kind of trying to figure out how loyal people are to that brand. The, I, there were skylines in, there was one in Lima and there was one in, in Dayton as well, close to the campus. And I can't say I ever tried it prior to moving to Cincinnati and I wouldn't oh. have realized it was tied to Cincinnati. I don't think That's funny. so. Yeah. This has all been since we moved here prior to moving to 
Bermuda, everyone used to joke that my husband should run for the mayor of Cincinnati because he, when he moved here, he really fell in love with the city and he could not say enough good things about Cincinnati. He would talk about it all the time. He'd be naming off facts all the time and just everything. He loved Geta. He loved Skyline. He, you know, he loved all the chili restaurants. He loved hmm. anything that was Cincinnati. So he was always, my friends were always calling him the mayor of Cincinnati. So he, he experimented a lot with Cincinnati foods and, right. and, um, and all things Cincinnati. And so he really, he really indulged in the, in the culture of Cincinnati. That's Catherine Lawrence from Cincy in a Box, discussing Cincy in a Box, uh, how they choose items, why some items are hot and some items are not, and why some things seems to go in spurts. We kind of have a lot in common with those folks, trying to figure out you know, what's going to sell and what's not. Uh, Cincinnati Parks were our next guest, Michael George. He's a naturalist with the parks. And he's based at Burnett Woods, and he joined us to discuss, well, something that you folks might be interested in if you're a homeowner or property owner in the area, invasive species, both plant and animal. There are unfortunately any number of non-native invasive species that we have to deal with on a, on a daily basis. Uh, most Cincinnatians at this point are familiar with the bush honeysuckle that uh, has filled up a lot of our woodlands. We also have smaller uh, herbaceous plants like garlic mustard or lesser celandine, um, Japanese honeysuckle, which is a vine. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, we do have kudzu now oh, here right. in the city of Cincinnati. It's, it's not predominant like down in the south, but it is here. So it takes a lot of time and effort uh, to control those invasives. We're very lucky to have a great volunteer community that um, assists us in their control and removal. As far as uh, invasive animal species, um, not sure if you would consider them exactly invasive, but uh, many Cincinnatians are familiar with our famous Lazarus lizards or the European fence lizard, which are now found in any number of our parks as well. Hmm. So uh, getting back to the plants, where did the invasive plants come from? I know a lot of this, the animals probably wind up here as either discarded pets or uh, things that people thought might make a good pet. But uh, how do the, the plants get here? Is it people that maybe bring them from other parts of the country and they just get out of control in their yard and... Yeah, a variety of uh, means. For Some were brought over as horticultural specimens. They were brought here specifically to plant and enhance the environment and provide beauty or color. And over time, they took to our climate and our conditions here. They had no natural insect predators or pathogens that affected them, and they were able to outproduce and outcompete against our native flora. In some cases, you know, there are accidental introductions. Uh, the Emerald ash borer is one, uh, not specifically a plant, but an introduced insect species that uh, decimated our ash tree population. In some cases, like the bush honeysuckle, uh, there was a time when the Department of Natural Resources actually promoted the planting of this uh, bush for some soil stabilization. Yeah. For kind of holding back the earth there and uh, even as a cover for habitat for wildlife. Michael George from Cincinnati Parks discussing invasive species, not only in the parks, but in our area here in the tri-state. Episode 168 was something that was really 
big and popular and everybody wanted to talk about this year, of course, it was cicadas. And they, oh, I guess it wasn't too bad this year. I don't know where you were at, but Mandy Pritchard, she is a keeper at the World of Insects at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden. And she spoke with us about the emergence of Brood X. And she kind of gave us, uh, she walked us through exactly the life cycle of the cicada. Pretty interesting stuff here. Here you go. In a couple weeks, right, we're going to have the big emergence. And the males are going to start singing. And that's their cue that they're ready to mate. Females find the males, males find the females, they mate. The female will then lay eggs in tree branches. And so this is, you know, we'll get into this probably later too. What are the, the harmful things that cicadas can do? Um, they will lay eggs in tree branches. Um, they typically go after branches that are like a quarter inch thick, uh, maybe a half inch thick. So younger branches, not big old branches. And so she'll use something called an ovipositor. This is like a hollow sword-like structure on the end of her abdomen. Some people might think it's a stinger, it's not. It's what she uses to lay her eggs. So she'll insert that actually into the tree branch at an angle and she'll lay about 20 eggs at one time into that tree branch and then she'll leave. And she'll continue to do that because she will lay up to 600 eggs as an individual cicada. Wow. Uh, right, and if you think about how many cicadas are a, you know, actually able to mate and lay eggs. It's a lot of eggs. Will she hook up with only one male and then pr produce all 600 eggs from that? Or is yeah, are it... they monogamous? <laughs> I don't think they're monogamous, no. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so then those those eggs, though, in that branch, um, about six, some people say six to ten weeks later, those eggs will hatch and they fall to the ground. So they fall to the ground immediately under the branch they were laid in. And that's where the nymphs will actually burrow into the ground and they'll reach the root system of that plant. And that's where they'll start eating. And then they'll stay down there for the next 17 years, munching and growing. They'll molt several times underground. They'll get a little bit bigger, you know, every couple of years. And then 17 years later, we repeat the process. Mandy Pritchard from the Cincinnati Zoo discussing the life cycle of cicadas. And boy, they just kind of came and went and uh, they were bad for about a week, I think. I think they're getting less and less bad because I think every time they try to like, you know, uh, I guess not hatch, but um, breed somewhere and then drop to the ground, I think that ground ends up getting paved over. And then that's, you know, she discussed in the episode why that's, you know, the, you have to have 17 years of undisturbed ground pretty much for them to come back up. Otherwise, if you put a parking lot over top of them, well, done. <laughs> so we get to a really interesting episode. It's kind of grisly, but it's something that's of interest to people in the tri-state, certainly. Uh, author J.T. Townsend, He's best known for his book, uh, Summer's Almost Gone. It's about the brick and murders. He's written tons of books about crime, not only in the tri-state, but nationwide as well. He's got one about the Kennedy assassination. We're going to have him back on to discuss that. But in this episode, we discussed the brick and murders of the early 1960s, and he discusses a theory that he has about the case. I, I can tell you this. She worked the, the week before the murders, and I encourage everyone to read the book, Summer's Almost Gone, obviously. I've got massive detail. And if you're, if you're obsessed with the Bricker case, no detail is too small for you. <laughs> she worked Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday only. Wednesday night, getting off work at 9, she didn't come home till almost 11. She was drunk, and she seemed to be upset. And Jerry Brickett was furious, and according to a neighbor, said something like, I need to go over there and beat him up, meaning Leininger. Oh, now, they're dead in four days, so he's making a threat against Leininger, and Linda Brickus stayed two hours after work, 
came home intoxicated and visibly upset. So I wish I, I'd really like to know what happened at the Glenway Animal Hospital between 9 and 11 on the Wednesday night before the murders. Because I think, I think that's when the seed of murder was planted. You know, uh, I see it in crimes all the time. It's like the old law of nature. Someone takes an action. Someone has a reaction. And then there's a consequence. You know, uh, did Linda Bricka push somebody into a corner somehow? But to get back to your original question, before I was in the case file, PF, I always assumed, okay, Leininger was obsessed with her. And she ended it. Once I got in the case file, I no longer started thinking it was a single killer. And I think she was a threat to lining her. I think this murder was about covering up scandal. was about not having your life, your comfortable life, destroyed by your... uh, girlfriend, you know, not having your marriage and your business and all that dragged through the mud. Um, I think this crime, rather than an obsession, I think this crime stank of fear. What could this woman do to me? Author J.T. Townsend discussing the Bricka murders in his book, Summer's Almost Gone. You can pick that book up wherever you pick up books. And again, like I said, he uh, writes a lot about true crimes. So we're going to have him back on to discuss uh, other true crimes, both national and local. Our friend Greg Martini, who we had on a couple of years ago, he was a member of the band's, well, he's a founding member of the very great cover band, the Rusty Griswolds, as well as the original uh, alternative pop band uh, known as Birdhouse. Uh, he discussed that with us. Uh, he's also, by the way, the drummer currently in your band's most terrific. It's a 70s covers band. But he's also very interested in Bigfoot. I've known Greg for years. So we discussed Bigfoot. And in this particular episode, uh, this clip, uh, we discuss how it kind of that whole Bigfoot following relates to UFOs and how people view that. And Greg also discusses the or addresses the question of why we've never found uh, a Sasquatch body anywhere. And he doesn't ever come out and say this is all about Sasquatch. But when you start to hear about how people have gone missing, how if they're found, whether dead or alive, the the circumstances around that, not really much else it can be. And of course, as you get to this topic, all kinds of other phenomena come up about balls of light. I was, well, was going to um, say, this is what people don't, with with, with UFOs, um, I, I was just re- seeing something somewhere, uh, might have been a documentary or something, uh, where they're saying, oh, the government is uh, withholding information about UFOs, and people are like, oh, well, well, that's ridiculous. Well, they are, but what people don't understand is they're not... People people mishear that. They think, oh, the government's not telling us about UFOs because they know they're alien. No, the government's just withholding information because they really don't know what it is. When Project Blue Book ended, which was the project in the 70s to investigate UFOs, they released all the information except for a couple of things, not because they were alien, but they just didn't know what they were. And they probably didn't want to say, be it some kind of scary natural phenomenon or more likely uh, experimental aircraft from our enemies, like the Soviets or something like that. So when you when there's when people say there's a government cover to withhold information, it isn't necessarily what you think it is. The reason is it could be for some other reason. So I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, I think a lot of it is they just don't want people freaking out. 
for whatever UFOs. reason. I mean, it, it, whether it's a whether it's a Sasquatch or maybe there's some there's some serial killers out there or a group of serial killers, whatever it is, they don't want to tell anybody until they know for sure and they know what they're right. dealing. Yeah, that could it'd be as simple as that. Yeah, even as far as serial killers, I mean, they keep a lot of that undercover because I think a lot of times they they don't want people thinking, "Wow, this is the organization supposed to protect me," mm-hmm. and they have no idea. I was just going to say. If the Air yeah. Force doesn't know what these things are, well, what the hell? What kind of Air Force right. do we have? They can't identify yeah. this aircraft. Yeah, I think the difference between Sasquatch, Bigfoot, and UFOs, and they've obviously released now videos like, "Hey, here's here's the Navy camera. They're chasing these things. You can see it. Yeah, these things are crazy." And I think the government's like, "Well, it's so it's pervaded the culture so much. It's like there's really no holding back. We've got footage. We don't know what they are." You know, you're out there on your own. But I think when it comes to, especially the national parks, which is under the, the jurisdiction of the government, when these things are happening and they can't control it, they, they're they not going to talk about it. And they want it swept under the rug. Of course, I get asked a lot of the, the same basic questions. Why we find a body? Blah, 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 blah. And I, and I always point to the BFRO.net FAQs. explains it all really quickly. And I'm happy to answer any questions and um well even like so in all park i was doing another hike and i jumped up on a log and and there was just a dead deer right there like on the other side so fresh or even flies and this is like mm, mid-november and i thought well that's interesting i don't know what killed it but they died so i come hiking back two weeks later and the thing's gone and it's not like gone no one came and got it you can see where this thing just was basically eaten up by the woods and the creatures, little trails, bones. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens with any creature. Have you found a bear remain? Have you found bear remains or bear skeletons? No, no. Nature just takes care of it. And um, so that body thing, I don't know. It usually comes from people who really aren't interested or really don't want to learn more about it. They just, I think people want to be comfortable and they're like, they don't exist. Greg Martini discussing Bigfoot in the tri-state. He just posted something the other day. He was up in Columbus and found some weirdly shaped uh, foliage, which he thought this could not be natural. Somebody made this. Now, it could have just been some kids playing on the woods, or maybe it could have been something else. It looked pretty weird for kids to make, the picture I saw. So anyway, you make your choice. Go back to episode 170 and find out more about Bigfoot in the tri-state. Filmmaker Adam Stovall joined us for episode 171. He discussed his film, A Ghost Awaits, and also discussed is how you can find some Cincy shirts right there in the film. One of the few things I actually knew what I was doing, uh, I knew that we needed to clear things. You know, you can't just wear a logo. You know, it's actually a huge deal when you're shooting something. People, You have to tell people, like, please wear something with no logos on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to do that. Like, in my experience, most people don't walk around in, like, logo-less clothing. Especially somebody um, working a blue collar job, like I've wor- I've been a maintenance man. I've loaded airplanes. Like I've worked a lot of these menial jobs. You know, you wear a t-shirt, and so uh, I had the idea to go to Cincy Shirts and say, "Hey, do you guys own your logos?" And they said, "Yes." And I said, "That's awesome. Can we have a few?" <laughs> 
and they were great. You guys, like, you guys completely threw your doors open. McLeod got here about a week before we're filming, and we went to the store, and he picked out the uh, the, the Pete Rose shirt that he wears yep. with the 14, and he picked out the King Records shirt. We got two of those because it's so much of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other shirt is Braxton because they were the, that they were the other sponsor. But yeah, you guys, you guys are in the credits. Jack shirts provided by Cincy shirts. Adam Stovall discussing his film A Ghost Waits, and it was filmed in Cincinnati. Cincinnati shirts provided some of the I guess uh, costumes. In other words, we provided T-shirts for the movie. Uh, Marty Thompson joined us on episode one seventy two. He runs WDJO, and it's a great radio station. They're on 1280 AM, and they have a couple of FM signals around town as well. And it's really great because it's a it's a proper oldie station in that it's still playing 50s and 60s oldies, whereas the big oldie station in town has kind of moved on, and they actually don't play much 50s and 60s anymore, unless it's the Beatles. And they play mostly 70s and 80s now, but WDJO plays uh, more like 50s and 60s and into the 70s. Marty is their program director. He also uh, does the daytime show from like, I think he's on from 10-ish, 11-ish, all up until like 2, 3 o'clock. And anyway, he discussed uh, some time that he spent in Las Vegas, which was kind of interesting, and then how he found his way back to the tri-state. The stratosphere was quite the place. They had a roller coaster up at the top of that thing called the High Roller. Still do. Uh, and then a slingshot, like yep. a, ah, oh, insane. I find, It was the last week that we were doing the show that I finally got up the nerve to go up there and do the rides. And uh, exhilarating and terrifying. Uh, we, I, I, the guy that did the overnight show had the misfortune of watching some dude, uh, jump to his death. Oh no. Uh, off of the stratosphere. He had, uh, I guess robbed some banks up in Washington state and came back, blew all the money gambling and, uh, somehow hopped over all the security barriers and, uh, and jumped and it looked like he had, uh, changed his mind and he was trying to cling onto the glass and claw his way back up. And those handprints were there until the day we stopped doing the show. They never cleaned that glass. Oh, my God. The real world was there. They were doing uh, bungee jumping off of the top of the tower. They installed a beam, and uh, we'd get, you know, probably a base jumper every month or so would pop in. Uh, cool place to do a show. And as an aside, you talked about Casino. Yeah. The radio station, the base operation of the radio station of Clear Channel in Las Vegas was actually in the um, bank where they did all the bank scenes from casino oh. the fake bullet holes were uh, still along all along the facade of that building which is now a medical marijuana dispensary <laughs> wow it all comes full circle doesn't it <laughs> yes it does so you wind up back in the tri-state after that i came back into town took over as program director at b105 had some fun there ended up going back to iheart radio they were looking for somebody to help with their nationally syndicated Oldies program also did a brief stint in there with the TKO radio network during their doing their uh, nationally syndicated show. We were on a, a couple hundred stations from the basement of my house, which is actually where I'm talking to you right now, but nowhere near as luxurious studios in our in our new basement as we had in the old basement. Marty Thompson discussing working in Las Vegas radio and then coming back to the tri-state to work in radio here. For episode 173, we talked to a historian whose expertise is the Americana slash Lasordsville Lake Amusement Parks, and he discussed 
uh, a very interesting piece of the, Scott Fowler is his name, by the way. He discussed a very interesting part of the history, uh, discussing how Americana kind of opened to close, it opened to close. You may know if you've lived in the area in the 90s and 2000s, you kind of know about that. But there was a an idea to merge the park with Coney Island down here on the river here in Anderson Township. And, well, Scott discusses that. And uh, company picnics are the lifeblood of any park, including place like King's Island. Yeah. Um, company picnics is what pays the bills. So once they started canceling, the park was just losing money left and right at that point. So they had to go bankrupt at the end of 1990. So in 91, they had um, four former park management people take over the park. They had great ideas. They just didn't have enough capital to, to keep bringing in new rides. So Tony bought them out and um, Tony had the plan of having a North Park and a South Park. And I can't remember the guy's name that was the that was the head of Coney at the time. Um, in any event, he died in the second year of ownership. And for whatever reason, um, his wife, who had taken over the company, didn't like the idea of keeping Americana. So she had it put up for sale, and then it sold in 1990, basically out of desperation to a uh, local businessman who had no experience operating amusement parks. He just knew what he liked and, and what he wanted Americana to go back to be. And so he hired a uh, company that had gone bankrupt about a year or two before, and the company operated um, operated like a carnival because that's pretty much all they knew, and it just didn't work out too well. And They didn't get along with the owner, and... The owner wanted this, and they wouldn't cooperate. It was a huge mess. The owner spent a few million on his own, uh, improving the park, and it just it was just too much for him. So, end of the year, he closed it down. Had plans to reopen it, but it just never materialized. Scott Fowler, amusement park historian in particular. He's a historian about La Swordsville Lake and Americana amusement parks. You can look up his Facebook group, probably the best way to find out uh, what he has going on and some of the, he has old photos and things like that and memories of Americana and La Swordsville Lake. So do check that out. And you can find, I believe he has a book as well, which I'm sure you can also find on the Facebook page as well. We spoke to the folks that run the Vent Haven Ventriloquist Museum over in Northern Kentucky. A lot of people know about this. A lot of people don't. It's in Fort Mitchell. It's just in a house. They're looking to expand to a bigger building. And as you would presume, it is a museum full of ventriloquist dummies. And we spoke to Lisa Sweezy. She is the curator of the Ventriloquist Museum. She is not a ventriloquist. She explained that. She said that uh, you, you want someone that's more of a curator than an actual ventriloquist because she said she would just get distracted uh, looking at the, you know, the museum pieces all day and you know, maybe, you know, uh, trying to make them talk and things like that. But no, she's a, uh, her curating is her, her first love and she loves curating this museum. She discussed with us kind of the rise, fall and rise again of ventriloquism on TV in America. Well, I would say that ventriloquism has certainly had its ebbs and tides. Um, it was at a very high watermark in vaudeville and then bergen carried that through uh the depression to film and early television and radio and then you've got once then you get into the ed sullivan era itself and it was incredibly common on the ed sullivan show so even though like for example that you named senior wences that was also ricky lane there was also clifford guest there was tons of ventriloquists who were on that show it was common as dirt when 
Ed Sullivan went off the air, I think it was 1970, 71. Um, I could be off a year there, but when that went off the air, there just really wasn't a television show featuring variety acts of any type. You moved right into sketch comedy. And then after sketch comedy, like Carol Burnett, then you move into sitcom. And so you're talking about, you know, 25, 30 years go by where there's not that public consciousness. You'd have to seek out these entertainers or see them um, by chance, you know, on a cruise ship or in a nightclub or something like that. So it was a tough time for variety acts of all types. Lisa Sweezy from the Van Haven Museum. Just Google Van Haven Museum. You can find out all about how to go there and see their collection. I believe it is by appointment. So if you just email them and say, hey, I'd like to come out, you know, Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock, she will meet you there. And you can go through the museum and see all of the great ventriloquist dummies that they have there. And it's uh, it's a good time. For uh, wrapping up episode one here, or part one of the uh, look back at 2021, we're going to finish up with Deadlow Brewing Company here in Anderson Township. Paul Ganim and Chris Woods, they run Deadlow Brewing. And boy, it's been very successful. My wife and I went by the other day, we were going to stop in and just do a little happy hour, and the parking lot was packed, so we figured, well, we'll go some other time. But uh, they discuss how they hired their brewmaster and kind of how they let him have control. This is what I always thought was kind of interesting. Some people start a brewery, like Listerman. They, they, he is his own brewmaster. He got interested in it, and Braxton the same way. Uh, they started brewing in their garage, and they got interested in it. With Deadlow, they kind of wanted to start a brewery, and they knew how to run a restaurant and so forth, but they had to bring in an, an outside person to be their brewmaster. And, well, here's what happened. But uh, to be honest, at the very beginning, we, when we brought Grant on, we gave him the keys and we kind of walked away because, A, we wanted him to uh, understand that the, he was coming on to a new, newer system that he maybe wasn't totally familiar with. But, um, you know, we wanted him to build his own processes. And uh, he made some changes and tweaks and how the equipment was set up. And, you know, and it takes a little while. And then he started with some of the recipes that he, he had, you know, his comfort level and, um, and we just kind of let him run with it because they were just turning out so well. Uh, we were just blown away. We, we knew we had made the right choice that, you know, when we were talking, speaking with him, of course, but, uh, uh, he really showed what he can do after, you know, the first one or two or three beers, and, and then we just kind of gave him free reign. Paul and Chris from Deadlow Brewing discussing uh, hiring a brewmaster to run your craft brewery if you're not the brewmaster yourself. And that's going to wrap up part one of the Cincy Shirts podcast, best of 2021. Next week, we will hear from the author of Secret Cincinnati. We will discuss the Warbird Museum. We will, let me see, talk to filmmaker Cam Miller. The great Jim Tarble appeared on the show as well. We talked to the historian, the official historian for The Golden Lamb, and a whole lot more, so do stay tuned for that. Like I said, go back and listen to all the episodes if you can, but feel free to cherry pick. Uh, And if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, as always, please email us podcast at cincyshirts.com. Put podcast guest on the subject line and maybe a few sentences about why you think that person would be a good guest for the show. Uh, Today's show was produced by me with all from Josh and Darren and Billy. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They're from Philadelphia. Find their music in Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your music, you can find them. You can find vintage t-shirts from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, and more at oldschoolshirts.com. We have lots of defunct sports teams, old malls, old restaurants, TV and radio personalities, 
and the like. It's like Cincy shirts, but for those towns. And the promo code for this episode, what should this one be? I think I'll pick it from one of these. Let me see, from one of our previous guests, I will choose, well, they probably already used that one. What would be a good one? I'm gonna just say radio. How about that? Radio, simply R-A-D-I-O. We may have used it before. If we did, I'll reactivate it. But this week's will be radio. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye